Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Picture yourself alone in the middle of nowhere, and there's somebody following you. He went on his way, we so thought, and then we went on ours. But in reality, he really followed us up there. On Deadly Nightmares, the true crime podcast from ID, listen to real stories of ordinary people stalked by serial killers and attackers. Please, tell me we're not going to die. Listen to Deadly Nightmares on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The following podcast contains explicit language and content that may not be suitable for all listeners. Previously on Unraveled, Long Island serial killer. None of the bodies would have been discovered if it wasn't for Shannon Gilbert. The 24-year-old was working as an online escort and was last seen running from the small seaside community of Oak Beach. There was always weird stuff going on there late at night. There were parties with numerous sex workers. At this party, did you know, did you know he was a cop? Yeah, I knew he was a cop. I didn't know that he was so high up. It's a cover-up of some sort. Ten bodies uncovered, and whoever's responsible is still out there. Do you want to start with how this entire thing started? It was a sex party. Police make mistakes, they're only human, but these weren't mistakes. He said your whole fucking family's done. If there's anybody who knows how to kill someone and get away with it, it's a cop. Somebody's just keeping the cover up going. From ID and Joke Productions, this is Unraveled, a seven-part podcast. We're gonna show you that everything you think you know about the Long Island serial killer investigation is wrong. I'm Billy Jensen. Our investigation here on Long Island has so far brought us shockingly close to the core of Suffolk County police corruption. The corruption is one of the key reasons why this case has never been solved. I'm Alexis Linkletter. This leaves us with two very important questions. What is the current state of the Long Island serial killer investigation? And are we any closer to finding the killer or killers? If you've been with us since the beginning, you're now familiar with James Burke, the former chief of police for Suffolk County. In 2012, he brutally assaulted my friend Chris Loeb and covered up the incident for three years. And for those crimes, he went to prison in 2016. Suffolk County Executive Steve Ballone appointed Burke's replacements. Starting with Tim Seney as the new police commissioner in 2015, then Geraldine Hart two years later. 
It appeared both were giving the case the attention it needed, and we were encouraged to see some progress. But how much had they actually advanced the investigation since they took over? Years had gone by without any new developments in the case. In January 2020, the Suffolk County Police Department surprised the public with a press conference. Good afternoon. Thank you for joining us. I would first like to introduce Suffolk County Police Commissioner Geraldine Hart. She is joined by... The woman holding the press conference was Police Commissioner Geraldine Hart. Thank you for joining us. The Gilgo Beach investigation is perhaps the most well-known and complex that this department has ever undertaken. It is important that the families of these murder victims know that we remain steadfast in our commitment to deliver justice and in doing so, give a sense of closure. In our continued effort to advance this investigation, today we are sharing information with the public that we hope will shed new light on this investigation. In a few minutes, I will release a photograph of a previously undisclosed piece of evidence found at one of the crime scenes. Today, we are releasing the first piece of new information, a significant piece of evidence found at one of the crime scenes along Ocean Parkway. At this point, Hart reaches down below her podium and lifts up a piece of poster board with two photographs attached. A black leather belt embossed with the letters HM or WH was recovered during the initial stages of this investigation. The two photographs were actually of the same picture. One was displayed so that you could see how the letters could be W and H. The second photo was upside down, making the letters look like an H and an M. The photo only shows an extreme close-up of the letters, which are a light aqua blue color. The letters are heavily stylized, highly unusual, and look sort of like calligraphy. You really can't tell if you're looking at a W and an H or an H and an M. There was also no context for where on the belt these letters were. The actual letters are approximately uh, one half by one half inch, so that is uh, dramatically obviously increased. Um, and embossed is, you know, it, is it stamped? Is it, uh, we're not certain. So what we want is the, is the public's help, help on that. Hart's next comments were cryptic. We believe that the belt was handled by the suspect and did not belong to any of the victims. We are not providing the specific location where the belt was found and additional information on this item will not be available at this time. We are hopeful that this photograph will bring somebody forward with information about the origin of that article. It was the first news about the case in years, but we still had many questions. Most glaring, why have we never seen this piece of evidence before? So we reached out to Commissioner Hart and Tim Seney, who stood by her side throughout the press conference. Seney is now the DA of Suffolk County, they both agreed to sit down with us. So the press conference where you announced a piece of information, a clue, which was a photo of a belt. Why choose that piece at that time? So unique. Uh, you know, the idea was that that's a very unique marker. And so we were hoping that if someone knew someone with that marker 
on a belt at some time, that that would trigger their memory and that they would provide that information. Why show a photo of the belt instead of show the belt on the, at the press conference? You know, I think the, the point of the belt was the marking, and I thought you got to, I think the photo uh, served the purpose. You had said at the press conference that you believe the belt had been handled by the killer. What made you say that? So nothing I'm going to comment on, but that's something that we, that we believe. Why reveal it now? It was a very strategic decision um, in terms of you know, why we released it, when we released it, uh, but I can't go into too many specifics. The thought is, as we're going in this proactive uh, avenue, as we're asking for the public's help, this might be something that uh, is very unique and might trigger trigger something in somebody. Do you think that looking back at the investigation, you know, Burke took over in uh, January 2012, somebody seeing the belt in 2011 might be able to recognize it or jog their memory a lot better than nine years later. Do you think the belt should have been released earlier? So, you know, from my position, it's, it's difficult to look back uh, on decisions that were made and, and just the context that they were made in. So there's a lot of things going on on the ground that I wasn't privy to. It's certainly not a decision that I would have made, but... Uh, have you gotten any tips on the belt? We've certainly received a number of tips since January of uh, 2020. Commissioner Hart and DA Sini were not about to break protocol and disclose the tips they learned since showing the photo of the belt. And that's understandable. But their strategy of waiting nine years, then just showing a close-up picture of a belt, and then saying they may show more photos later, was puzzling. So we reached out to Dominic Verone, who was the chief of detectives back when the victims were discovered, to get his take on why police are only just now releasing the belt evidence. So it's the first clue that we've seen in the case in many, many years. What did you, what are your thoughts on that? And why, why did it potentially take so long to release that belt? I'm not going to speculate as to why they waited this long and why they decided to do it at this time. But I am hoping that they've developed a suspect and they're just looking for enough probable cause uh, to give them the, the ability to arrest him. I may be wrong. They may be nowhere. But that was nine years and a tremendous amount was lost. Appealing to the public's help when it's fresh and in their mind. I hate to criticize, but at some point in time in 2012, I think I would have appealed to the public, well, look at the dates, for example, the four, when they were last seen uh, and when they were murdered. The four Verona's referring to are the Gilgo Four, discovered in December 2010. Megan, Melissa, Maureen, and Amber. I mean, that's, that's a really important piece of evidence. We know, for example, that those four were killed by the same person. Those particular dates, if you knew your ex-boyfriend or your husband was alone at that time, on every one of those occasions, there's a good suspect. And, 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 and the same thing with Jessica Taylor and Valerie Mack. Jessica Taylor and Valerie Mack are two of the victims whose head and hands were found around the same time as the Gilgo Four, but their torsos were found much earlier. Jessica's in 2003 and Valerie's in 2000. 
So if you look at the dates now, you know, nine years later, who knows what their spouse was doing or their friend or their coworker. So I think a lot is lost in that regard. On December 7, 2020, Suffolk police added two more photos of the belt to the website. One photo reveals the initials are embossed near the tip of the belt. And the second is the reverse side of the belt, showing it's made of black leather. They still do not show the entire belt. The belt was not the only big announcement that Suffolk County Police made at that press conference in January of 2020. Today, we are launching a website dedicated to sharing information with the public about these unsolved murders and also providing a new way for the public to provide us with tips. Gilgonews.com is a platform to better facilitate an information exchange with the public, where the department will, when appropriate, release information as well as provide an additional avenue for the public to submit a tip. We checked out the website Gilgonews.com when it first launched. And at that time, we noticed some strange things. First, the victim known as Peaches is missing from the site, but her toddler daughter is there. This may be because Peaches was found across the border in Nassau, but it's clear her murder is related to the toddlers. And we also noticed that Shannon Gilbert is included as one of the victims. This struck us as odd because Shannon's death is one of the biggest mysteries of this case. No one knows if her death is related to the Long Island serial killer case or not. So we asked Commissioner Hart and DA Cini why Shannon had been included as one of the victims. You've got one victim that might be uh, death by misadventure. Death by misadventure is defined as a death due to unintentional accident without any violation of law or criminal negligence. Right. Is Shannon Gilbert connected to these other four women? She's connected in that she uh, was found in the area. The timeline is within uh, a year or so from the other four victims. She was also a prostitute. Um, she, so she, there, there are common commonalities between her case and the other four women, but there are also contraindications that she was a victim of a crime. The search for Shannon Gilbert really ignited the case because we found um, the other women based on that. But it's an undetermined death. The uh, medical examiner did not uh, have a determination of death. So it is certainly an open investigation of, of whether that was a homicide at all or whether that was natural causes. However, uh, there are many, many strong arguments to be made that she does, her disappearance does not fit the pattern of the Gilgo Beach serial killer. What are those arguments to be made that she's not connected? So, you know, she was driven there by a known driver. Uh, Michael Pack drove her there. He was there during the uh, encounter with Brewer. We have the individual that she's going to meet known. Um, none of this is the same as the, uh, as the other girls. The other girls uh, did not have a driver. Uh, there was no known person that they were going to see. That, that was all known for Shannon. And then we know that the bodies of, uh, of the four women that were found uh, were very close to Ocean Parkway. She was found significantly in from Ocean Parkway. We know that Shannon made a 911 call and made her way through Oak Beach, um, encountered two separate people. Uh, you know, all of that is really diminishing her availability as a victim to any sort of uh, serial killer that would be, be out there. So there's a lot of different things that remove her from that equation. 
John Ray, the attorney who represents Shannon Gilbert's estate, argues that one of the reasons police are classifying Shannon's case as open is because they don't want to release the 911 calls that Shannon had made the night she vanished. Many believe those recordings are the key to unlocking the mystery over whether Shannon was murdered by the Long Island serial killer or not. It would seem that an important part of the entire case would be what happened on May 1st, 2010, as recorded on 911 calls. The Suffolk County Police Department and the medical examiner's office both said that Shannon said on the tape, they're trying to kill me. There were several calls made that early morning and the next day. The calls were made in the first instance by Shannon Gilbert herself for a total 23 minutes. There was a call by Gus Coletti, the neighbor on whose door she knocked. There was another 911 call from Ms. Barbara Brennan on whose door Shannon had also knocked and appears to have been the last person to see Shannon. And then there were a series of calls made by Joseph Brewer, the John. All of those calls are 911 calls. They belong to the county. I asked for those 911 calls to be given to us as part of the civil case I had against Dr. Hackett because the police themselves said there was no active police investigation since Shannon allegedly died of unknown causes. So I should have been entitled to them. The police said that they wouldn't give them up because there was an active investigation going on. So I had to go to court to subpoena them and immediately the county police department came into court and said, you're not getting the tapes and we had to fight it out. And that fight took years. Finally, after all those years of battling, I won the litigation to get them. The police department refused for years to give them up. They finally had to, they did. The court order mandating Shannon's 911 call be handed over to John Ray was delivered in 2020. This recording has never been released or heard by the public, but we were the first documentary production crew to sit down in person with Ray and interview him about what he heard on that tape. There will be many things on those tapes which will absolutely stun people. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Picture yourself alone in the middle of nowhere, and there's somebody following you. 
he went on his way, we so thought, and then we went on ours. But in reality, he really followed us up there. On Deadly Nightmares, the true crime podcast from ID, listen to real stories of ordinary people stalked by serial killers and attackers. <laughs> Please, tell me we're not going to die. Listen to Deadly Nightmares on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. I'm very lucky to have a close relationship with my amazing mom, and I'm doubly lucky to be friends with some amazing moms. The thing is, this means that every year, right around this time, I get those panicked phone calls asking for Mother's Day gift recommendations from, obviously, their partners. So I was excited to learn about StoryWorth just in time for Mother's Day 2024. StoryWorth is an interactive way to preserve your loved one's stories for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question like, what do people get wrong about you? Or what's the most incredible trip you've ever been on? All your loved one needs to do is respond to that email with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. StoryWorth will send you a copy of your loved one's response, and after a year, StoryWorth compiles the stories and some photographs into a beautiful hardcover book that will last for generations. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. The moms in my life are big-hearted, hilarious, and they're all super storytellers, so they're going to love StoryWorth. I just know it. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift you'll all cherish for years. StoryWorth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash unraveled. That's storyworth.com slash unraveled to save $10 on your first purchase. The question of how Shannon Gilbert ended up naked and dead in a thicket of bramble next to the Long Island serial killer's dumping ground is as vexing as it is controversial. And what we couldn't stop asking was, wouldn't it help everyone involved if police just released Shannon's 911 call? The December 2011 decision by Burke and others to keep these recordings a secret suggested there was incriminating information on these tapes. So why does this new administration downplay the likelihood that Shannon was murdered, but still continue to keep the recordings a secret? Why were they playing it both ways? What is the truth? In May of 2020, John Ray became the first person outside of law enforcement to finally get a chance to listen to those recordings. So how did they deliver them to you? They were two discs and uh, some paperwork with it and no transcripts and no analyses. Wait a minute, so you're trying to tell me that this phone call that people have been asking to hear for a decade and the subsequent phone calls when she went missing, they never transcribed them and they never had anybody listen to them for any type of analysis. It's stunning to me that they didn't do it. And so for a decade, as you said, you've been really immersed in the life of Shannon Gilbert. Yes. And not only until a couple months ago did you hear her voice or, or know really anything tangible about her. She was this abstract sort of... She was an abstract person. That's yeah. true. The ruling said that you're allowed to listen to them, but you're not allowed to talk about it. Is there going to be anything on those tapes that 
is going to surprise people. There will be many things on those tapes which will absolutely stun people. And one thing I can do, I can discuss what the police department said was on those tapes because the police department through Detective Vincent Steffen wrote me a letter in 2012, right after I first entered this case and told me I was all wet with what I claimed about the police conducting a Pink Panther investigation. And <laughs> um, he sent it to Newsday, which published it in a feature letters section of the paper. So the police put out to the public by themselves what they said was on the tape. So I'm entitled to discuss his letter. Nobody's restrained that. So to break down what Ray is telling us, it's only through a legal loophole that he's going to be able to reveal to us parts of what he's now heard on that 911 tape. And the loophole is based on the fact that a detective named Vincent Steffen had written a letter to Newsday about what Shannon said in the 911 call. Steffen's aim was to try and shoot down Ray's claim that the police mishandled Shannon's case. So if I read you some statements made by a detective that was printed in Newsday, can you tell me whether or not those statements are true or false based on what you heard on the tapes? Yes. I can tell you answers to any questions about what the police said in public, but not what I learned from the tape itself. I can't talk about what was said there. Okay, so I'm gonna start now. So, quote, I listened to Gilbert's 22-minute 911 call. The 911 operator tried several times to get Gilbert's location. At what point she mentioned she was near Jones Beach? Is that true or false? False. Gilbert never said she was at Oak Beach. It is hard to respond to a call when the person calling doesn't know where he or she is. Possibly true. In the house at Oak Beach, Gilbert was not about to be murdered. Her demeanor on the tape was calm. False. Out outrageously false. You can hear male voices on the tape, and they are calm. Outrageously false. At no time during this call was she desperate. Again, very false. From what I heard on the call, Gilbert was not speaking as if she were in danger. Grossly false. Despite this, she decided to run from the house and her driver, whom she relied on to take her back to New Jersey. During the investigation, I interviewed an individual who drove Gilbert to her quote-unquote dates in the past. He said she would leave houses and apartments in the same fashion as she did in Oak Beach. Grossly misleading. He described her as being a paranoid person and at times acting irrationally. Likewise misleading. John Ray's account of the 911 call is alarming, but how could it be so different from Vincent Steffen's? I don't know if Detective Steffen really heard the tapes himself. When you read his letter, where he's representing that he did, it's hard to believe that he did. So therefore, one concludes either he's lying that he's heard the tapes, or he's lying about what's on the tapes. It can't be anything else. We gave Vincent Steffen a call. Hello. Hey, how you doing? Vinny Steffen, hey. My name is Billy Jensen. I'm a journalist and I'm a producer for Investigation Discovery. We're doing a seven-part podcast and a two-hour special 
on the Gilgo Beach investigation and the Suffolk County Police Department. And we had just interviewed uh, the attorney, John Ray, who had listened to the 911 call. And he had said that his impressions of what he had heard on the 911 call were far different from the impressions that you had. Even though I'm retired, it's an active investigation. I, I stand by what I wrote in Newsday. And um, if Mr. Ray dis disagrees with me, that's his, that's his opinion. Did you actually listen to the tape? Well, I think if I made a comment about it, yes, I did. I, it's just odd that... I, I, was, I was the first detective that listened to the tape. Okay. Have you ever heard the tape? I've not heard the tape, no, because the police won't release the tape. Right, and they shouldn't. It's active investigation. But what I'm saying is... Well, that's not necessarily you know, I, true. It's not, you know, they've already said that Shannon Gilbert died by misadventure, so... It's not really an active investigation when it comes to Shannon Gilbert. Yeah, you're right, you're right. I'm not, you're right. It doesn't matter to me. <clears throat> I'm long retired, so it doesn't matter, but you're right. But my, my point is, what I wrote on, um, in Newsday in 2011, I stand by. All right, thanks, bye-bye. Okay, have a good day. I cannot believe he engaged you that much about it. That was awesome. Mostly because he's like, you should, they shouldn't release it. It's an active investigation. And like we've been saying, they keep playing both ends against the middle with that yeah. and saying, she died by misadventure, she died in the elements, she died by drowning, it's not connected to any of the foul play with the other victims, yet we won't release the 911 call because it's an active investigation. And he's the first person who's like, you're right, that's, you know, that's a good point. We asked Sini and Hart for a rebuttal. What is the reason to not release that 911 call? So, you know, my objective is to protect all of our investigations, uh, Shannon Gilbert being one of them. And uh, understanding that John Ray's uh, focus is on his civil litigation that he has representing the estate of Shannon Gilbert and his, his right to, uh, to hear that tape and, and what's on it. Initially, certainly the, the reason was that it was part of a criminal investigation. I think that there's certainly uh, a robust discussion going on as to the pros and cons of releasing that 911 call. But the 911 call is not the only concern we have. There are lots of pieces of evidence in this case that police are still holding on to a decade after the bodies were found. One example of evidence you'd think Suffolk would have released by now is the security footage from June 6, 2010, which shows Megan Waterman leaving the Holiday Inn in Hopog on foot to meet her killer. Megan's body was found six months later on Gilgo Beach. Or evidence such as the women's clothing worn by the unidentified victim known as Asian male. If the public saw the clothing, maybe it could possibly trigger someone's memory and lead to identifying the Asian male. Plus, victim Melissa's sister heard the actual voice of the killer, as well as the language the killer used in the phone calls to her. Verone told us the language was so sick and sadistic. Maybe someone might recognize the words used by the killer and call in a tip. After all, that's how the Unabomber was caught. 
Withholding all of this evidence made us wonder how much more transparent they want to be compared to the previous administration. We asked Commissioner Hart and DA Sini about their decision to continue to sit on evidence. Why release the belt and not other pieces of information? Why not release everything all at once? It's been 10 years. Right. So there's a myriad of different pieces of evidence in this case, and uh, each of them are evaluated. And as we did with the belt, it's, uh, it's something that we thought would be useful uh, for the public to see, and we're going to continue to evaluate the case and make those decisions as we move forward. We try to balance transparency with protecting the investigation, and hopefully we're, we're striking the right balance. But you know, I'm, I'm sure that some folks say that we're not transparent enough, and other folks say that perhaps we're too transparent and that we're letting too much information go. So you're sort of seeing it as um, putting the belt out, maybe waiting six, nine, six to nine months, and then saying, all right, we've got a little bit we can build on, but let's put something else out. Exactly. So there is other evidence that potentially could be released. Correct. Do you just say, all right, it's been a decade, or if we're sitting if we're back here in five years saying it's been 15 years, to let more and more out? And, you know, like in particular with the belt, do you think releasing the belt, say, a year later, could have garnered more tips because people move, more people would have seen it. It's going to be less impactful now than it's going to be, you know, a year after when it's fresh in everybody's heads. I don't necessarily think that's true. I, it's certainly a possibility, your analysis. Um, you know, I think all I can say is that uh, there were there are certain facts that are going to become known to us. And then there are those facts that were known to the investigative team from the beginning. And you know, the belt is a good example of that. Um, and uh, certainly people can question the, the exact timing of the release of the information. You know, query, would it have made more sense to release that earlier? In May of 2020, Suffolk County Police surprised the public with a second press conference. But this time, it wasn't to show a piece of old evidence. We have new investigative leads. DNA analysis confirmed that the partial remains of the victim known as Jane Doe number six were a match to those of the woman found in Manorville. Thanks to the FBI, today we are announcing that Jane Doe number six has been positively identified as Valerie Mack. The commissioner further revealed that the FBI used genetic genealogy to locate relatives of Valerie. Detectives then interviewed family members. They learned she was last seen near Atlantic City in 2000. It was a positive sign that this new regime was taking the Lisk investigation in new directions. Hopefully, they will be able to identify the other unnamed victims as well. This is important not just to bring a sense of peace to the victim's loved ones who wonder where they went, but also for figuring out if any of them had a relationship to the killer. The more police know about who a victim was and who the victim was in contact with, the higher the odds they can solve the case. As far as the other unidentified victims, Fire Island Doe, Peaches and the Toddler, and the Asian male. Is it safe to say that currently you are utilizing genetic genealogy on all of them? 
We're trying every avenue. Uh, the toddler and the Asian male have been more challenging, uh, but we're not finished yet, so we, we do have to do some other, uh, other work on that. But, uh, but certainly the idea is to make sure that we're identifying every unidentified victim in this case. Commissioner Hart refused to answer if they had the DNA of the perpetrator. But there is a new forensic technique that we have to think they're using to try and recover some. It's called the MVAC. And it's like a vacuum for DNA. It can basically suck molecules and cells out of things that other methods cannot. Those burlap bags, for example, that the Gilgo 4 victims were wrapped in, maybe they could pull some of the killer's DNA out of one of those. It's been 10 years, memories fade, people die. Do you think the Long Island serial killer case can be solved at this point? To be frank, this case is solvable, but it's solvable with new information from the public. It's solvable through new technology, particularly DNA analysis technology. And it's solvable through phone analytics. And that's something uh, that my office is very much involved in on the phone side. Cell phone analysis can tie people to locations at certain points in time and vice versa. So in terms of phones and the phone records, how do you see that work that you're doing with the FBI being helpful to locate the possible killer? That's like a matrix. Human beings, detectives and agents can do a lot of that, but there's a level of commonality analysis that the human brain cannot do. There's a plethora of information regarding each victim. And if you overlay that information with phone data, it becomes humanly impossible to connect all the dots. So you have to use sophisticated data analytics to assist you in that endeavor. And so we've partnered with a non-governmental organization to assist us in doing just that. Has that been hampered by the fact that you're doing it a decade later? Are there some records that have been purged by whichever carriers that you're working with? I think it, it's hard to answer that question uh, at this point in time. Uh, I'll tell you that many phone records were obtained at the time, over the, over the course of the investigation, and recently. We've been able to obtain very old phone records. Phone records are the key to a lot of our success in terms of cracking cases these days. I can tell you a lot about who's contacting whom, where they were when they were contacting people. I can show you movements, and you overlay that with phone, phone data, and it can tell you a lot. Basically, you're putting human intelligence, you're putting facts about the investigation, and you're, you're mixing it with the phone records, and you can start to see a cleaner picture, a clearer picture, of what happened. Phone call tracing where the bodies were found could have been a way to find the killer. But have a listen to what Rob Trotta had to say about this aspect of the case. It may be our biggest clue yet that Burke tried to derail the Lisk investigation. Trotta is a former detective on the Suffolk County Police Force. It was conveyed to me by a former high-ranking official in the police department that they wanted to subpoena for the Gilgo Beach murders a cell tower. And that, that subpoena has to go through the district attorney's office, which Jimmy Burke controlled. Back in 2011, when the list case was at its height, Burke was the inspector detective in DA Tom Spoda's office. 
So they sent over a subpoena. We want to know every phone that was pinging off the cell tower. The DA's office denied it, saying it was too intrusive, that you couldn't, you, we don't want to do that. Now, that's something they would never deny. I mean, I've done it, you know, many times, seeing who's, where your phone is, where the phone is pinging you off of. So it was never done. Up until recently, there was only a narrow window in which detectives could obtain phone data. I think now it's kept forever, but I think back then, they only kept it for six or eight months on the number of phones that were pinging off a certain cell tower. Interesting. Which would tell me that if, you know, Jimmy Burke had nothing to do with this, or the DA's office was, you know, really into getting this guy, of course they would do that dump. Please note, we only have one source for this story, Rob Trotta. So we're not able to verify if it's true, but if it were, could this have been one of the biggest missed opportunities in the investigation? Here's Tim Sini. There are a lot of decisions made in this case over the years by James Burke and Tom Spoda that may not have been in the best interest of the case. And if those decisions had set us back years or even months, how do you explain that to the victims? Certainly, the investigation suffered under James Burke and Tom Spoda. Is that quantifiable, the damage that he could have done? It's one thing if you can't solve a case because technology doesn't exist, there's limited leads, you don't have the tools necessary to crack the case. But if we're able at the end to solve it and say, oh, only if we did this earlier, to me that's adding insult to injury and I'm, I'm not sure you could ever quantify that. What do you think the odds are that this killer is still killing? There are serial killers that stop for for more than a decade and don't kill uh, again. There are some that move on to other areas. And then there's, there's some that go to jail in the prison or some that die. So all those options are on the table. It's, it's... So on the website you launched, it's not clear if there's a Suffolk County prevailing theory at this point. One killer, two killers, multiple killers. Why is that? There's certainly arguments to be made, strong arguments for both, but uh, but one thing that we've done as, as a team together is really to keep an open mind and make sure that we are simply following the evidence wherever it leads. How important is it to you, whether that be personal or from just your professional perspective, to solve it or to help solve the Long Island serial killer case? I mean, we certainly are motivated uh, to solve this case. We're mindful of where we sit. We sit 10 years from the anniversary of discovering the first body. And by the way, that's, it's more than 10 years from when some of these women went missing. And that timeline is troubling. There are many victims, family members, who are counting on us to solve this case. But there's a secondary objective, too. There's a lot of questions surrounding this investigation. And a lot of mistrust has come about because this case remains unsolved. And so solving this case will not only give justice to individuals and takes a very dangerous person or dangerous people off the street, but I believe it will help us rebuild some of that trust between law enforcement and the community. As we come to the end of our investigative journey on Long Island, we are encouraged by the change we've witnessed inside Suffolk County law enforcement. But ultimately, we can't forget who recruited and hired all of these new leaders. Steve Ballone. 
Steve Ballone is the same county executive who was a close political ally of Tom Spoda. The same county executive who hired James Burke and kept him in power for two years while allegations of corruption swirled around him. We asked Ballone to speak with us multiple times about the subject, but he wouldn't go on the record. Then, several weeks later, he finally agreed. Hey, Billy, how are you? How you doing, Steve? I'm good. Okay. How are you, Alexis? I'm good, thanks. So, wanted to start with one of your first acts when you were elected was to hire James Burke as the chief of police. How did you come to that decision? There were uh, people that I trusted at the time who highly recommended Jim Burke. He had this unique blend of experience between the police department and the district attorney's office. And I interviewed him and he came across as very smart, innovative, uh, reformer. And I came to realize over time that there are many sociopaths who are talented and effective people. He seemed like the perfect choice at the time. Uh, Unfortunately, at the time, I didn't know that he was involved in a corrupt conspiracy with Tom Spoda. You made a reference to James Burke being a sociopath. Can you elaborate on that? Why Why you think that? Well, if you look at what this corrupt operation has done and the fact that they would target people, they would look to ruin people's lives, and in some ways you get the sense that they enjoyed doing it. That's sociopathic in my view. And the, the impact they've had on people's lives and on this county is incalculable. Yeah, but, but Steve, the thing is, is that Burke answered to you. You were his boss. So if there was something going on, the, the, the change that could have been made with the, within the investigation ultimately falls on your shoulders. If Burke was a lone actor, then I would say absolutely. But what I understood almost two years into my administration was that the center of corruption in this county was in the district attorney's office. And that was my focus. And I had been battling with this district attorney's office from the time I got here. And at the time, I'm aware there is a federal investigation that is already happening. And I believe that they were looking at this corruption. And the reason this became a federal case was because they wanted to look at this. And this was their way in the door. And I wasn't going to do anything at that point that could potentially interfere with them doing that critical examination. That was the heart of the corruption. The federal investigation Malone is referring to is the Christopher Loeb case, the same incident that initially triggered our investigation. So you felt comfortable for two years having a sociopath leading your police department? Uh, It took time to understand the corrupt operation that existed in this county. We have effectively ended that reign here, and there is new leadership with integrity that is wiping out this culture of corruption. Do you think Burke could have killed these women? I can't comment on the investigation in any way, nor do I want to speculate. 
but I'll let the investigation be handled by what I think are uh, some of the top law enforcement people uh, that exist anywhere in this region now. I think it's it's critical that it, it is solved. Um, the families deserve justice and given everything that's happened here, I think it is, it is vitally important that um, that those families have closure and that, that justice is delivered here. We feel we got as many details out of County Executive alone, DA Tim Sini and Commissioner Geraldine Hart than anyone outside of law enforcement is going to get. They have to hold some cards close to their chest. But we don't. So, join us in our seventh and final episode when we debate the number of killers involved in this case and who the most likely suspects are. We'll also share some behind-the-scenes revelations we experience while investigating this case on Long Island and our ideas on how this case can be solved. If you have information or anything you want to share about the Long Island serial killer case, we'd like to hear from you. Email us at unraveltips at gmail.com. Unraveled is produced by Joke Productions for ID. The executive producers of this podcast are Joke Finsoon, Biagio Messina, and Jeff Kuntz, along with myself, Billy Jensen, and Alexis Linkletter. Executive producer for ID, Thomas Cutler. Additional producing and writing by Margaret Aronson. Our editor is Aaron Frescia. You can also submit anonymous tips to the Suffolk County Police Department by either calling Crime Stoppers at 1-800-220-TIPS or by visiting their website, gilgonews.com. The music and score that you have heard in this podcast is by Biagio Messina, Dave Pellman, and the Alibi and Nimble Libraries. Make sure to check for Episode 7 next week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps a lot when you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast that you enjoy listening to. Thank you for listening and for your support. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.